And that brings us to chapter 11, verse 21. Joash was seven years old when he began to reign. And in Jehu's seventh year, Joash became king. He reigned for 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother was Zibai, who was from Beersheba. And throughout his lifetime, Jehoash did what Yahweh approved, just as Jehoiada the priest taught him. But the high places were not eliminated. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense in the high places. So once again, we're back to Judah. Now that we're done with Ahab and his long reign and this family and descendants and that kind of stuff, we come back to Judah and it says, and the high places were not eliminated. So we're getting back to that routine there. Joash said to the priests, I place at your disposal all the consecrated silver that has been brought to Yahweh's temple, including the silver collected from the census tax, the silver received from those who have made vows, and all the silver that people have voluntarily contributed to Yahweh's temple. The priests should receive the silver they need from the treasurers and repair any damage to the temple they discover. So over the years, the temple has gone into disarray. And it's been, we don't know how bad the disrepair is. We don't know how expensive it's going to repair it. But he says, look, there's been silver donated to the temple over the years. We're going to use this silver and we're basically going to repair the temple. So this is a good desire and it seems like a good motive. But notice that he does not mention like for Yahweh's sake or for the glory of Yahweh and that kind of stuff. Now it's too late for a hardcore judgment on him, but it is something to be aware of and to notice. Verse 6, By the 23rd year of King Josiah's reign, the priests had still not repaired the damage to the temple. So King Joash summoned Jehoiada, the priest, along with the other priests, and said to them, Why have you not repaired the damage to the temple? Now take no more silver from your treasuries unless you intend to use it to repair the damage. The priests agreed not to collect the silver from the people and relieved themselves of personal responsibility for the temple repairs. Years go by, and we don't know how many years exactly go by, and he knows that nothing's happened. Now, we don't know exactly if, is it that he's reigned for a long time and commands them to repair the temple, and then after a couple years he notices nothing's happened, or that when he first became, started to reign, he commanded to repair the temple, and then years go by, and he notices it hasn't been done. Either way, the text seems to be emphasizing that at least a few years have gone by between him commissioning the temple repair and noticing that it hasn't happened. That's a long time to not really pay attention to the temple that much and to not notice no repairs. Okay, In Columbus, it doesn't take long to notice that things are being repaired or fixed as you're driving around. And he's the king. And the temple is the most important thing in all of Jerusalem. And remember, all he has to do is just turn around on his roof and look up and the temple's right there. So he doesn't have to go anywhere. So yet he doesn't notice that this is happening, which means that this is not a real high priority on his list. It's not a huge concern to him. So the fact that nothing is mentioned to, the, to Yahweh, he does not mention Yahweh at all, and the fact that it takes him a while to notice that nothing's happening does not look favorably towards him. So he tells the priests. Now, it seems that the priests have been pocketing the money too. Because the priests have been collecting money for the temple, but it's not being used for the temple, which does not shed very good light on the priests either. And we're going to learn later from the prophets, the priests are big time corrupt at this point in Israel's history. 
So verse 9, Jehoiada the priest took a chest and drilled a hole in its lid and placed it on the right side of the altar near the entrance of Yahweh's temple. The priest who guarded the entrance would put into it all the silver brought to Yahweh's temple. And when they saw the chest was full of silver, the royal secretary and the high priest counted the silver that they had been had brought to Yahweh's temple and bagged it up. So now Jehoiada like locks up a chest and drills a hole in it and says the only way to get into this is like to break in. And they're putting money. And so now the money is going to a good place. Verse 11, they would end hand over the silver that had been weighed to the construction foreman assigned to Yahweh's temple. So the priests aren't touching the money. It's going directly to them. And Jehoiada seems to be the only priest that's really overseeing this. So once again, he seems to be one of the very few that's not corrupt. One of the very few that's not corrupt. They went to the temple as well as the masons and stonecutters. They bought the wood, chiseled the stone to repair the damage to Yahweh's temple, and also paid for all the other expenses. The silver brought to Yahweh's temple was not used for the silver bowls, trimming, shears, basins, trumpets, or any kind of gold or silver implements. It was handed over to the foreman and used to repair Yahweh's temple. So basically all the money did not go to buying things to fill the temple, but literally repairing the structure of the temple only. They did not audit the treasures who distributed the funds to the foreman, for they were honest. Now that's interesting. They did not audit the foreman because they were honest, but the priest could not be trusted. The silver collected in conjunction with the reparation offerings and sin offerings was not brought to Yahweh's temple. It belonged to the priests. Now that one's okay because Leviticus specifically said that in a purification reparation offering, the priests get a portion of the animal sacrifice. So it's saying that they get to keep what God had already assigned to them. Verse 17, At that time King Haziel of Syria attacked Gath and captured it. Haziel then decided to attack Jerusalem. King Joash of Judah collected all the sacred items that his ancestor Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, kings of Judah, had consecrated as well as his own sacred items and all the gold that could be found in the treasury of Yahweh's temple of the royal palace and sent all to King Haziel of Syria, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. This is what it basically says. He collects all this money to repair the temple, and then when Haziel attacks him, in order to stop it, he goes and he robs the temple of all of its money and all of its belongings so he can pay off a bribe to Haziel to keep him from tacking him anymore. And once again, Yahweh is not mentioned. This shows you that his agenda was also not a revival. It had nothing to do with Yahweh. For him, it could have been either one, this is an incredible historical national treasure of our nation, and we're going to preserve the temple because it makes our nation look good and powerful in the same way that we will keep things in Washington, D.C. going and making them look well. Or it could be that I'm just trying to make God's temple look good too because I'm playing both sides, the pagan gods and Yahweh. And if I please both, I'm more likely to be blessed. We're not told specifically his motive agenda, but as we go through the prophets, we'll realize that that's usually one or the other is people's agenda during this time period. I'm either trying to worship God and the gods so that I'll get blessed from both of them, not anger anybody, or I'm just preserving this as a national treasure, something that's part of our ancestry and part of our nation and should be distinct. But when it really came push to shove, 
He did not trust in Yahweh. He did not go to Yahweh for help. And he had no problem robbing Yahweh to pay off a foreigner, to stop attacking him. And that shows where his heart really was. Now, the Bible in the very beginning has said that he was obedient to God. But that doesn't mean he was his entire life. Because the Bible also said about Jehu, and then turned around and said, but then he started worshiping the golden calves. And just because they start off that way doesn't mean that they end obediently. Just like we're going to learn later that people can start off disobediently and end obediently. So it goes both ways. Verse 19, the rest of the events of Joash's reign, including all of his accomplishments, are recorded in the scroll called the Annals of the Kings of Judah. His servants conspired against him and murdered Joash of Beth Milo on the road that goes down to Silla. His servants Jozabad, son of Shemeth, and Jehozabad, son of Shamar, murdered him, and he was buried with his ancestors in the city of David. And his son Amazariah replaced him as king. Now this is significant because Joash is the only Judean king that has been violently killed. And to be violently killed and assassinated shows that God is not backing you. Now, God, remember, this time period promised that if you obey me, I will give you long life in the land. Now, long life doesn't guarantee that you've been obedient and godly. Ahab is an example of that. But a short and violent death is usually a judgment from God. Now, remember, we're not speaking of us today. You cannot transfer that because that is an old covenant, Mosaic covenant promise of God. But he does not transfer that over into the new covenant for us. And it usually is only for leaders, people who are anointed by God. So, But what is clear is that if you're anointed by God leading the nation, then a violent and quick death, as in like you're dying young, I guess it's not quick death, but a violent death at a young age is a sure sign of God's judgment. And that right there highlights the fact that Joash was not a godly man by the end of his life. And we already know previously that God does not like it when you rob his temple for your own agendas. Chapter 13, verse 1. In the 23rd year of the reign of Judah, King Joash, son of Ahaziah, Jehu's son, Jehoiaz, became king over Israel. So now the narrator switched back to Israel. And God promised them four dynasties. So Jehu now has a son by the name of Jehoiaz. And we're going to learn about him. Verse 2. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh. He continued in the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Bat, who had encouraged Israel to sin. He did not repudiate the sins, these sins. Yahweh was furious with Israel and handed them over to King Haziel of Syria and to Haziel, son of Ben-Hadad, for many years. So now, once again, we see, again, Haziel will kill all those that escape the sword of Jehu. God is using Haziel as a judgment against Israel for their sins. And specifically mentioned this here. Verse 4, Jehoiaz asked for Yahweh's mercy, and Yahweh responded favorably. Now, ironically, the really evil king that is under the judgment of God is asking Yahweh for mercy, yet Joash, who was supposed to be a godly king, never did, never went to God. Even Jeroboam, who was incredibly ungodly and never repented, 
when his arm was petrified, he cried out to God for mercy and received healing. And so it is possible for evil men to cry out for mercy, even though their hearts may not change and be committed to Yahweh in devotion. And here's another example of that. He is crying out for mercy, not repentance and not changing his life, but crying out for mercy from Haziel attacking them. Now, that's the whole point. One of the reasons that God allows nations to attack your nation is it is a judgment for your sin. But the other reason is to take away what you have. And when you can't stop it, it hopefully humbles you and makes you cry out to him and to repentance. Now, what he really wants you to do is cry out mercy and repent. But many times he only gets the mercy and not the repentance. And that's what we're going to see here. So Yahweh provided a deliverer for Israel, and they were freed from Syria's power. And the Israelite once more lives in security. But they did not repudiate the sinful ways of the family of Jeroboam, who encouraged Israel to sin. They continued in those sins. And there was even an Asherah pole standing in Samaria. And Jehoiaz had no army left except for the 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. The king of Syria had destroyed his troops and trampled on them like dust. There's a couple things going on here. So he cries out for mercy, and God provides a deliverer. Now, we're not told who that deliverer is yet. Okay? It's going to be implied a little bit later who the deliverer is. And most likely, what most scholars think is it was his son. His son will rise up, and they'll have like a co-reign, and his son will be the deliverer. But it also reminds you of the book of Judges, where they sin, they cry out for help, God sends a deliverer, but they don't give up their idols, and nothing changes. And by the end of the book of Judges, the deliverers aren't godly. God is using them to save Israel, but they're not godly. And that's what we're going to see with his son. He's going to deliver, and God's going to use it, but he's not godly either. Now, he seems, going to be, he seems to be, well, we'll talk about this later, but he seems to be the best of them all. But that's like, compared to Hitler, you're a really great guy. Okay? So it's like, it's not the be- that's not the compliment I want you to hear. Okay, so, so there's a, this theme of the judges, and the narrators intentionally do this, because we haven't seen this word deliver since the book of the judges. And God's throwing you back to, here we are again. We're going to start seeing this cycle going on and over and over and over again. But the other thing is that Israel doesn't repent of their sins. They cry out for help. God saves them, but they don't repent of their sins. And the other thing is, they're now pathetic now. Their military is incredibly pathetic. Haziel has smashed them like dust, according to the Bible. That there is no hope of them ever, ever really standing up against Syria on their own. Now, if they go to Yahweh, Yahweh can deliver them like he just did now. But on their own, they're hopeless. And we're going to begin to see now where Ahab and Jehu um, have brought Israel up into prominence, now they're losing that. But they're going to have one more rise into prominence, wealth-wise, before they fall again. So it's a roller coaster. Verse 8, The rest of the events of Jehoiaz's reign, including all of his accomplishments and successes, are recorded in the scroll called The Annuals of the Kings of Israel. Jehoiaz passed away and was buried in Samaria, and his son Joash replaced him as king. We come to his son. 
In the 37th year of King Joash, or Jehoash, these are variants. Joash and Jehoash are the same. It's just like a longer version, like Will and William. So they're, they're variants here. So a lot of times the NIV uses Jehoash just to kind of get rid of confusion, but at the same time, there's no reason for that. In the 37th year of King Joash reign over Judah, Jehoiaz, son of Jehoash, became king over Israel. He reigned in Samaria for 16 years. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and he did not repudiate the sinful ways of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who encouraged Israel to sin. He continued those sins. The rest of the events of Joash's reign, including his accomplishments, his successful war, the king with King Amaziah of Judah are recorded in the scroll called the Annuals of the Kings of Israel, and Joash passed away, and Jeroboam succeeded him on the throne. Another Jeroboam. Joash was buried in Samaria with the king of Israel. Now, that is by far the shortest summary so far, other than like Zimri killing himself. But even he got more sentences to describe his death and everything. So basically, he became king, he did evil, they continued to worship golden calves, and then he died. That's all the narrator really cares about him on that one. And then he actually names his kid Jeroboam. So some Bibles might say Jeroboam II or that kind of stuff because this is Jeroboam II, but it is a Jeroboam. He becomes king. Now we pause. And just like we talked about earlier, where Elisha becomes the next prophet between kings. Now, we know that Elisha became a prophet during the reign of a king of Israel. But he becomes prophet in the narrative between kings. After one king dies and before the next one is mentioned. In order to narratively make the point that no king rules over him. Now we have the death of a king. And before God goes into the birth or the reign of another king, he's going to come to Elisha's death. Now, once again... Elijah did not do it the way that God wanted him to do it, and then he disappeared for a while until really his death was mentioned. Now, we have Elisha who didn't do it the way that God wanted him to do it, except this wasn't a direct disobedience to God, because God did not directly command him to anoint Jehu or Haziel. But because he didn't do it the right way, he kind of disappeared from the story too, until we come back to his death. And so these guys have been kind of put on the bench for a while until they die because of the way they handle things. So now we're going to learn about Elisha's death. Now Elisha had a terminal illness. King Joash of Israel went down to visit him. And he wept before him and said, My father, my father, the chariot and horsemen of Israel. Now the last time we saw that was when Elisha saw Elijah whipped away in the whirlwind and cried out, the horses and chariot of Israel. Now he's about ready to die, and he's saying the same thing, or some, um, the, the king is. Now what is interesting is Elisha is dying of a terminal illness. And this one's hard, because this can speak as a judgment against Elisha as well. Remember in the patriarchs, they were all dying of a old age. And you've you got to love the way they die. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and stuff. They're just like, I'm old and I'm ready to die. Let me bless you, my son. And then they die. I mean, like, that's like really cool way to just go. <laughs> like, it's painless. It's a long life. You're ready to go and you know when it's going to happen. And you're just like, yep, it's time. And then it happens. 
Yet we don't see this. We see a terminal illness with Elisha. And remember, diseases is a form of judgment in the book of Deuteronomy. So this one's hard because everything in me wants to say this is a judgment, but at the same time, like, oh my gosh, but that's not the way we've been taught and raised. So it's hard to just come out and straight out say that. Elisha told him, take a bow and some arrows, and he did so. Then Elisha told the king of Israel, aim the bow, and he did so. Elisha placed his hands on the king's hands. And Elisha said, open the east window, and he did so. Elisha said, shoot, and he did so. And Elisha said, his arrow symbolizes the victory that Yahweh will give you over Syria, and you will annihilate Syria and Aphek. So what's interesting here is Elisha is doing this word picture. Remember, prophets love drama. And not emotional drama, but like acting out drama. They love drama. So he says, take these arrows and fire them out of the window towards the east. Meaning, towards your enemy, Aram. And this symbolizes your victory. Now, this, this is to be a visual for Joash, that he can see the arrow going. But what is unique about the way that this arrow is fired? Elisha's hand. Yes. How many archers do you see shooting bows and arrows and a guy's got his hand on them? And pulling it back with him and letting go. Most archers would be like, God, just leave me alone. Okay, I can't do this. But yet Joash and Elisha are doing it together. Now, everything in you would say, like, that's going to totally screw up the arrow, right? Yet it goes really far and towards Aram. And what the prophet was probably saying is that only when we are side by side together can we have victory against the enemy. God intended king and prophet to work in conjunction with each other. And notice that all the kings of Israel constantly were failing and they were never consulting the prophets or they were attacking the prophets or they're like, I didn't even know there was a prophet that I could consult. And they never were successful. And they were always trusting in their own chariots. And now Joash is standing side by side with the horse and chariot of Yahweh. And together they launch an arrow out and it is successful in its distance. And so what he's trying to communicate is you will have victory because we are working together. You have come to me and that is what you're, what's going to make you successful. Coming to the prophet of God. Then Elisha has one more thing to say. Elisha said, verse 18, take the arrows and he did so. He told the king of Israel, strike the ground. He struck the ground three times and stopped. And the prophet got angry at him and said, if you had struck the ground five or six times, you would have annihilated Syria. But now you will defeat Syria only three times. Now this can be very confusing because he struck it three times. And Elisha gets mad at him and says, you should have struck it more. And it's like, okay, first of all, like, you don't usually take arrows and strike the ground. So this is very uncomfortable and unwise for me, or I'm not used to it. At the same time, you never really told me how many times to strike the ground. And there seems to be a confusion, like, yeah, the prophet assumes that he should know better. Now, here's a couple guesses. He says five or six times, but my guess is, in a world that really holds up the words, the number seven all the time, if it was me in that culture, I would at least come for seven. <laughs> Okay, there's, I mean, if God wants you to be complete in your obedience, then do it seven times. At least it's safe. Like, if you're really guessing on a number here, guess for seven. I mean, most of the time you're probably going to be right when it comes to the Bible. 
Okay, so there could be that idea. But also, many scholars have pointed out, and I thought this is a good insight, that it might be because he did it on his own. There's no reference of Elisha's hand being on his. And maybe he should have learned the real lesson was not firing the arrow. The real lesson was not striking the arrows on the ground, but the real lesson is I had my hand on your arrow the first time and I was pleased, but my hand was not on your hand this time. But at the same time, Elisha seems to get mad at him for the number of times they struck the ground and not that his hand was on his. So and all ten, for all purposes, we're just kind of confused. There, 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 there's either something that's like left out and it really is the number of times and it should have been seven or the hand, prophet's hand on it, or there's something that we're just culturally missing because we're a completely different culture in a completely different time period. But what is important to understand is that Elisha seems to think that Joash should have known. The story just kind of abruptly ends there, and it says, verse 20, Elisha died and he was buried. And then it kind of goes into this story, and you're like, wow, it's sudden, and now we're going to the Moabites. But then it's going to come back to Elisha. And so then it says, the Moabite raiding parties invaded the land and began in the beginning of the year. And one day some men were burying a man when they spotted a raiding party. And they threw the dead man into the Elisha's tomb. And when the body touched Elisha's bones, the dead man came back to life and stood on his feet. So basically it's letting you know these two guys are burying a dead body. And they see the Moabite raiders coming to attack them and kill them. And they're freaked out because they know they're going to die. So they're like, holy crap, we need to run. And just kind of take the dead body and throw it in the hole and start running. But as the dead body like falls in the hole, it like hits the bones of Elijah and then pops back out of the hole alive. And he's standing on his feet. I don't know, it probably wasn't that dramatic, but I like to see it that way. He pops back out and he's standing alive. And what's the point that's being made here? Once again, this is another one of those vague cultural things. But it seems to suggest that both in life and death, the word of God, the prophet, has no limit. That the word of God that is physically represented in the prophet brings life in this life and in the grave. And in the grave. And it's trying to emphasize here the power of the prophet. Now, why with Elisha and not Eli- or any other prophet? Don't really know. But it could be that Elijah maybe could have gotten this if he hadn't disobeyed God. It could be that it's Elisha because he's going to be the last of the positive prophets. He's the last of the positive prophets. From this point on, every prophet that comes after them now is going to just be ripping Israel a new one kind of a prophet. They have nothing kind to say about Israel in any kind of way. Why God chooses to do it here and in this way, we don't know. But it really seems to be the point is the word of God has power in this life and in the grave. But in the bigger context of the literature and the story, it probably most likely has to do with the fact that I mentioned earlier, we're entering a new stage in Israel's history. And the stage that we're entering into is God is giving his people over to their enemies. And over and over, they're going to be given over to their enemies. And unlike the book of Judges, it's going to end in their exile. And by far, the majority of the Israelites are going to be slaughtered by the Assyrians. And very few of them are going to survive. And a very small portion are going to go into exile. 
Judah is going to have more survivors, but even then a lot of them are going to die, and most of them are going to go into exile. And it could be that as we're going into this new stage of Israel being handed over to their enemies and ultimately into exile, the prophets are going to come along and emphasize that point, but then also follow up and say, but I will bring you back in the land. And they will say, and I will give you a new life, and I will regenerate your heart. And it could be that God is beginning to paint the hope that I'm going to take you in exile, but I will bring you back to life again. I'm going to send you into the grave, so to speak, but I'm going to give you new life. Now, that makes even more sense when you go to Ezekiel, the valley of the dead bones. And so God basically says, look at this valley of dead bones. And Ezekiel, and God says, son of man, Ezekiel, look at this dead bones. This is Israel, basically. That's the idea. And they're dead in exile. And he began to prophesy them. And as he began to prophesy the bones, they came alive. And they got flesh. And they began to walk and they began to breathe. And then the Spirit of God entered into them and animated them into life. God is making the point that I'm going to bring you out of exile. But, and we'll get to this prophets. I know we keep saying that, but we're getting there. We're getting closer. We get the prophets. They're going to make it clear that the return to the land is not just a physical return to the land. When God talks about a return to the land, he's talking about a regeneration of the heart, a change of the heart, which is only possible in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so it could be that Elisha making this dead body come out of the grave is the literal physical narrative of what will be metaphorically portrayed in a vision that Ezekiel will have later. And that the idea is that even though death will come in the exile, God promises through the land covenant of Deuteronomy to restore them back to life in the land. And we're going to start seeing that over and over again. This image of death and life. Death and life. Because every time God judges you, he always reminds you that he'll restore you. He'll restore you. And it could be a picture of that being painted in a literary kind of a way. So Elisha is dead and gone out of the picture. Verse 22. Now Haziel of Syria oppressed Israel throughout Jehoiaz's reign. But Yahweh had mercy on them and felt pity for them. And he extended his favor to them because of the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He has been unwilling to destroy them or remove them from the presence until this very day. When King Haziel of Syria died, his son Ben-Hadad replaced him as king. And Jehoiaz, son Jehoash, took back from Ben-Hadad, son of Haziel, and the cities that he had taken from his father Jehoiaz in war. Joash defeated them three times and recovered the Israelite cities. So here we see Joash successfully defeating them three times, just like Elisha said. And he seems to be the deliverer that God was talking about. However, He's not a complete deliverer because he wasn't completely sold out to God. 